Welcome to the Market Urbanism Podcast. I'm your host, Nolan Gray, a writer for Market Urbanism and a graduate student in urban planning. My guest today is Emily Hamilton, a contributor for Market Urbanism and a policy research manager for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where she works with the State and Local Policy Project. Uh, Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nolan. So today we're going to be talking about um, regulation and the relationship to rising rents. Um, Back in 2009, I think it was Jimmy McMillan who became famous for the the rent is too damn high party. Um, He's since become a meme. But since then, there's been a lot more serious coverage of rising rents and the relationship to regulation. Um, so what is driving this, this boom in housing costs? There's a wide economic literature that ties rising housing costs to zoning and other land use regulations that limit the development of new housing. So in cities where there's a lot of demand for people to live, um, if that uh, demand is not allowed to be met with an increase in the number of housing units that will result in higher prices. So we can see that in a lot of coastal U.S. cities today, um, New York City, San Francisco, Boston, and plenty of other cities are seeing rising prices because they're preventing um, developers from building new houses. Mm-hmm. So, so let's say uh, I I don't live in a city. I don't live in an urban area. I live in a suburb, or or we could say I live in a in a cabin removed from any city. Uh, Why should the average maybe rural or suburban American be concerned about urban development restrictions? Some of the cities where development restrictions are having the biggest effect on housing prices are also the country's most productive cities. So some Mm -hmm. of the best jobs and most important innovations are coming out of cities like New York and San Francisco. Um, But at the same time, people aren't able to move to those cities simply because um, the housing supply is very stagnant. Uh, so to the extent that people care about economic growth, regardless of where they live, zoning is a really important issue to be looking at. Also, parents might be concerned about um, their children's well-being as they grow up and become renters or want to become homeowners themselves. Uh, restrictive policies might be driving up Uh, housing prices, which could be an important asset for a suburban homeowner, but it's also going to make life more difficult for um, their children who are just starting out. Uh Uh-huh. And and, and two, I guess you're seeing a lot more restrictions in in what were rural cities, like places like, uh, I guess, Boulder. You're hearing a lot about development restrictions in smaller towns, which is interesting. Um, What's driving this? So, I mean, we can all agree that rents... um, that, that rising rents are a problem, that rising uh, housing prices are a problem, maybe unless you're, you know, that's your largest investment. But w- what's driving these development restrictions? Uh, there are a few different um, theories. One um, advanced by the economist William Fischel is uh, what he calls the home voter hypothesis. And so homeowners are hugely important voter blocks for local policymakers. So these policymakers may try to implement any policies that reduce the volatility of home prices as an asset for these these voters. Um, and I think that that explains policies pretty well, particularly policies like minimum lot sizes that 
eliminate the possibility of low-income people moving into high-income neighborhoods uh, and that reduce the overall supply of housing, driving up the assets of um, those home voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, minimum lot sizes. A recent paper you wrote with uh, Professor Sanford Ikeda of SUNY Purchase, uh, you two talk about uh, minimum lot sizes uh, and also minimum parking requirements. A lot of people, uh, maybe on the left, more anti-sprawl activists, are opposed to these policies, uh, maybe for more environmental reasons. Uh, but you two make the case against them on the basis of increasing uh, housing costs. What's the relationship between those policies and rising rents? So minimum lot size is probably the easiest policy to just think about logically and see why it drives up housing costs in a whole city. If land is already expensive and you're required to have, say, a quarter acre for every new home, that's really going to drive up um, housing prices and housing accessibility. On the parking requirement side, I think that people, um, what they see is free parking or the annoyance of having to pay for parking when they're going to work or running errands. And voters uh, tend to want that free thing that they see. What they don't see is that parking requirements are paid for by property owners. And ultimately, the cost of those parking spaces ends up in the cost of everything else we buy. So grocery stores have to charge a little bit more for everything in order to pay for a huge parking lot that they're required to have. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's just a case of the unseen in driving that policy. Yeah, I was reading recently about a a big dust up over uh, Trader Joe's. They have pretty small parking lots as i understand they just mm-hmm. they just meet the absolute minimums in most cases uh and as i understand the reason they do it is to pass along savings uh to the consumer um but i guess it's a problem of the seen and unseen right you, you, the person who's waiting in line in a parking lot sees that but they don't necessarily see like the 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 dime or the nickel off of uh their bag of frozen orange chicken i guess exactly yeah yeah. On the other hand, you two, um, in this paper I mentioned, you two address two policies that are generally pretty popular among that same group of uh, anti-sprawl activists, uh, urban growth boundaries. Um, they started, I guess, in around the 60s or 70s, and they've spread to uh, a lot of cities around the country. What's the problem with urban growth boundaries, uh, particularly with relationship to rents? Portland is probably the most famous city within urban growth boundary, and several studies have been done looking at house prices, or land prices rather, inside and outside of the boundary. And uh, many economists have found that the urban growth boundary has this a similar effect to a minimum lot size in terms of increasing the cost of housing. Um, and in particular, urban growth boundaries are layered on top of traditional zoning rules. So it's not as if inside Portland's urban growth boundary developers can build as much housing as they want. Um, Rather, the urban growth boundary is a new restriction on top of all the existing restrictions. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really limits um, the total supply of housing and is contributing to rising rents there. Well, and as I understand, too, the original vision for uh, at least Portland's urban growth boundary was that it would expand over time with rising demand for housing. Yeah, that's right. Um, So the idea is to um, release additional land into the supply of land that's allowed to be developed as it becomes necessary. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that 
that's very controversial um, when that should be done. Yeah, well, I guess the, you kind of have a, a a kind of incentives problem for policymakers where um, the if I own a home on the periphery and I have a nice view of a farm, I'm going to have a uh, you know, huge incentive to show up to every meeting about expanding the urban growth boundary. Um, but maybe the prospective uh, resident who could uh, have cheaper rent or who might live on a farm that was converted into a subdivision, they're not showing up to one of those meetings, I guess. Exactly. And the people who are really unrepresented is, say, the, the college uh, graduate who's looking for new jobs and wants to move to Portland but can't mm-hmm. afford to on the job that uh, he or she would be able to get. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a big part of uh, the response to rising rents um, has been the push for inclusionary zoning, uh, inclusionary zoning and, and, and maybe more public provision of housing. Uh, in the paper, you and Dr. Keda argue that um, these are going to be counterproductive measures, particularly inclusionary zoning. Um, why is that? So it seems it seems on its face like if you're requiring that new developers or new developments have, um, I guess, what are called below market rents, um, it seems like that would increase the affordable housing supply. Yeah. So inclusionary zoning, as you said, basically requires developers to include a certain number of affordable units within a new development. Um, And there are a few problems with inclusionary zoning. First of all, it produces very few units. So in the most expensive cities, inclusionary zoning is going to be a drop in the bucket of the of addressing the need for affordable housing. And additionally, since it typically affects new construction, these subsidized units are coming in the most expensive buildings. And um, if we were just thinking about um, the total cost of providing affordable housing, it would be much cheaper to do in older buildings rather than allocating the most expensive buildings to be where affordable housing is located. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also creates an incentive that developers can only afford to subsidize these affordable units if they're building very high-end luxury apartments. So um, we've seen in several cities uh, in the news recently, London, um, New York, and D.C., for having an oversupply of luxury buildings uh, relative to the number of people who can actually afford those very high rents. And inclusionary zoning may be contributing to having too many um, luxury buildings and not enough new construction that people who aren't at the very top of the market can afford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is behind the whole poor door phenomenon that was uh, extremely controversial, I guess, earlier this year, right? Yeah, that's right. There was a building in New York that wanted to create a special door for the inclusionary zoning tenants, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, uh, it sounds really bad on paper, but on the other hand, those inclusionary zoning tenants are winning the lottery by getting to live in an amazing location in a really nice building, as opposed to um, being able to um, live in a much less desirable location mm-hmm. with what they could otherwise afford. Yeah. I, I, another thing that's interesting to me is, I guess, the aesthetics of it in terms of the poor door, uh, but then you also find you know, cities in this perverse situation of there's a large supply of luxury housing and then a modest supply of um, low-income housing. And then you end up with very little, 
maybe middle of the road, you know, slightly uh, below market rate or, uh, or or around market rate uh, housing. And so you, you end up with, you know, uh, a really sort of bizarre picture of inequality um, with a lot of these buildings. Yeah, that's right. And in um, many locations where inclusionary zoning is in effect, the affordable affordability requirement is something like 80% of the average media median income. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're looking at, say, um, DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. has a very high median income. And so 80% of that is still a very solid income. And um, if (laughs) (laughs) inclusionary zoning is going to help those people who are making 80% of a very high income, it's not helping the people who need help the most. Yeah, I think I was seeing... uh... I think I was seeing one of these advertised, and 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 I I have a decent job, but I qualified for it, and I was surprised by oh, this is very like this is just a very strange system the way they determine eligibility, um, and and then just I I just think it's just interesting to go back to the the whole I mean one of the consistent issues for cities is retaining the middle class, um, and when you have these inclusionary zoning uh, mandates coupled with really tight restrictions on the housing supply. Um, just seems like a recipe for keeping everybody but the middle class or, you know, particularly people, um, you know, with children, which you've written about recently. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's kind of squeezing out the, the market for what people would be able to afford with a good job by driving um, new construction toward luxury housing that's only affordable by winning this housing lottery. Mm-hmm. An- another um potential or proposed fix for uh, increasing uh, unaffordability uh, is public housing, more public housing, uh, and then also rent controls. Um, Anyone who reads Market Urbanism knows that (laughs) we're not particularly fans of these policies, but (laughs) could you flesh out why um, those hurt the housing market as a whole? Yeah, public housing has a long history of um, creating problems in addition to the the solution that it may provide to um, providing shelter for low-income people. Um, but by concentrating low-income people in um, often very poorly designed and poorly located buildings, um, this this uh, public benefit may be making people worse off than they would be without the public housing, um, many people have argued. Um, And additionally, this public housing is very expensive to um, build and maintain relative to just transferring those resources to low-income people. So I'd argue that cash transfers um, would do a lot more to help low-income people. They would give... um, people the opportunity to spend the money either on housing, if that's their most important need, mm-hmm. or on all kinds of other goods that low-income people can't afford enough of either, um, whether that's um, healthy food, uh, services for their children, um, education, whatever they, they see as their most important necessities, rather than giving them this housing and, 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 and t- taking away the freedom to use these resources on whatever they need the most. Mm-hmm. Um, And as far as rent control, uh, rent control has a similar effect to um, some of the zoning rules that we talked about previously in that it reduces the supply of housing. So if developers can only charge 
a certain amount for rent and that's below um, what uh, is needed to incentivize new building, there won't be new building. And ultimately, um, it makes any housing that isn't under the rent control uh, much more expensive than it would otherwise be. Mm-hmm. And part of the appeal, too, I guess, of the cash transfer is, is you know, part of this whole uh, interest in basic income is it just uh, recognizes subjective value, right? I mean, just not everybody values uh, housing uh, compared to other goods equally, I guess, is a is an important consideration. Definitely, yeah. Um, and every household is going to be in a different situation as far as um, whether it's worth it to them to pay a premium to be in a specific neighborhood or um, whether they're willing to have a long commute in exchange for better housing. Um, so we, we really need to leave it up to those um, recipients of what their most priori- their most important priorities are. Mm-hmm. On market urbanism, you've written lately about um, the, uh, I guess, effectively the criminalization of a lot of forms of low-income housing. Um, so these would be uh, group houses, these would be maybe micro units. Um, it, talk more about how regulation um, tightly restricts, uh, particularly the low, the lower income sectors of uh, of housing, of the housing economy, the housing market. Yeah, American cities have a long history of being able to provide housing for the very most vulnerable populations who were immigrating to these cities from other countries, often with very few financial resources. Um, And much has been um, talked about as far as the poor conditions that these immigrants may have lived in as far as tenement housing or uh, other um, uh, short-term hotels or other very low-income housing solutions. But at the same time, it provided a way for people to be able to uh, live in, in the cities where they would ultimately be able to um, improve their own lives and the lives of their children through better jobs than they would have otherwise been able to get. Um, and I'm certainly not suggesting that tenement housing <laughs> of the 19th century is a viable um, solution for anyone to live in today. But just thinking about the freedom of the market to provide um, something that everyone can afford really shines a light on how important it is for cities to be able to provide housing to a a wide range of Mm -hmm. incomes. Um, You mentioned micro apartments, which have been very controversial in Seattle and Washington, D.C., as just a solution of very small apartments that provide an affordable way for young people to get a start in a new city. Um, And they're uh, being blocked by regulations in many cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think one of maybe the important distinctions is, is just the, you know, distinguishing basic health and safety regulations um, from really just what should be individual preferences on housing. Um, so I think most people would agree, market urbanists included, that, you know, some basic regulation of building um, so that you know buildings aren't collapsing, or so that there are basic safety provisions for fires would be reasonable. But in a lot of cities, you have things where it's like you know people want to live in micro units, and they they legally can't. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they're willing to make the sacrifice of not having much space in their apartment um, so that they can live in the location that they want. 
um, some of the objections to micro apartments have been tied into parking. Um, and so that points back to the importance of getting parking policy right so that people aren't opposing new housing because of what it's going to do to their parking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess public public goods in general, just this idea that any more people in my neighborhood, they're going to cause more congestion. They're going to use the parks more. Uh, they're going to they're going to compete with me for space. Um maybe even compete for uh, an arbitrarily restricted um, business uh, uh, market for, you know, cafes and restaurants. Maybe if the, mm-hmm. the neighborhood's already busy and there there are certain land use restrictions that prevent new restaurants from coming in, you know, you might just uh, say, well, I'm going to keep the places that I like to go relatively available by just keeping anyone out. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's maybe understandable but why current neighborhood residents would feel that way. But I think it's important to question whether they have the right to prevent um, other people from enjoying what they have. Um, mm-hmm. And these amenities aren't things that they are paying a market price for. Yeah. So on the, on the subject of uh, public goods, I think, I think over the last few years, everyone's come around to, okay, Conventional land use restrictions are a huge problem. Um, they've made most of our cities, particularly our most productive cities, completely unaffordable. Um, they're sapping cities of their vitality. Um, a big question for me is what's it going to take to reform those land use regulations? So you mentioned earlier that there's a big constituency for um, homeowners to restrict housing, uh, to raise you know the value of their largest investment, which is their house. Um, but, you know, you also see nimbyism, uh, not in my backyard, uh, pressures against even, you know, among renters. So if I'm a renter, I might also say, you know, I don't want somebody taking my parking spot uh, or, or other sorts of public goods or, or, or the dreaded community character argument. I don't want new people coming in and, and destroying my community's unique character. What are some ways that policymakers and, and activists can... Um, reform policy that would maybe make land use regulation reform uh, a little bit easier? We've seen the problems um, that arise when policy is driven by these very local concerns. So you mentioned a neighborhood character. Um, If there's a um, city council person who wants to protect the neighborhood character for their um, narrow group of constituents, that might have costs on all the other residents of the whole municipal area. Um, So I see potential for improving policy by raising the level of government where some of these decisions are made. Um, You might have a mayor who doesn't care whether or not his um, city is growing because he's um, happy with his current um, constituents and they're all doing well. But I think it's going to be very rare to find a state governor who um, is fine with a stagnant state. So mm-hmm. people at higher levels of government may have the right incentives to um, set some restrictions on how much lower levels of government can do to restrict growth. Um, and so this would be like state legislatures basically saying you have to allow a certain amount of new development or uh, certain forms of restrictions just aren't going to be allowed in the state. Exactly. Um, Massachusetts recently passed a rule that requires all of the localities in the state to allow some amount of multifamily housing to be built. Um, And that's the, it's not um, 
state micromanaging of where um, certain projects are going to go, but it's just saying, um, you know, we have low income renters who are an important part of the Massachusetts economy. They need to live somewhere and um, localities can't entirely block out um, apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. Well, as I understand too, oftentimes it's suburban communities who are trying to keep out uh, low-income residents who would, uh, I guess, bring their children and, in their mind, lower the quality of their schools. Is that a factor? Why are why would communities completely restrict multifamily housing? Uh, public education is definitely a huge factor in um, the pressures to maintain zoning, um, and that's a whole whole other policy area that I'm definitely not an expert in, but I, it points to the problems of the interconnectedness between the real estate market and public schools in the United States um, and the, the perverse incentives that that creates. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's maybe exciting about land use regulation, if you, if you could say that, um, is that it uh, it's it's both exciting and stressful that it seems to tie in just all these urban policies of parking and uh, transportation policy and, and education policy. Um, it makes it Definitely. a it makes it a very difficult uh, policy to untangle. Yes, yeah, every all of these factors are definitely um, interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Massachusetts. Um, I'm curious, what are some maybe some states or some cities, and this could be here in the U.S. or abroad, uh, who you think are getting land use regulation right? Um, there's, of course, a lot of talk on how it's going wrong in places like San Francisco and New York, but I'm curious to, to know if, if, if there are any places that you think maybe local and state policymakers should look to. Yeah, I know um, one city you're interested in is Houston, and they certainly mm-hmm. have a lot of um, sprawl creating policies in place with um, public uh, roads, freeways, uh, and onerous parking requirements. But Houston is a very interesting case of a city that doesn't have um, some of the traditional zoning rules that we see in a lot of other major cities. Uh, And as a result, it's been able to grow and accommodate a growing population without seeing uh, the types of housing prices that other growing cities have seen. It's, It's remained relatively affordable. Um, and over time, it's growing uh, not just out, but also it's becoming denser um, and accommodating more people in the, the center city as well as around the edges. Mm-hmm. Other reforms that you talk about in, in the paper that I mentioned earlier um, are changes in, in housing policy. Uh, so um, one of the big drivers of land use restrictions, of course, is that for most people, their homes are their largest investments, and so they're going to have a huge incentive to um, support policies that you know raise the value of that. What are some policies that maybe at the national level or, or state level um, policymakers should be thinking seriously about to make it easier to uh, reform land use regulation? Yeah, the uh, economist Ed Glazer, who's um, one of the premier voices on urban economics, uh, has pointed to the mortgage interest deduction Mm -hmm. as a key policy that drives people to want to move to the suburbs where uh, it's easy to buy as opposed to living in a city where um, multifamily housing tends to be um, more renter-occupied than owner-occupied. Another problem with the mortgage interest deduction is that it 
the more expensive of the house that you buy, the more you'll benefit from the deduction. So mm-hmm. it's a regressive policy that benefits uh, the wealthiest homeowners at the expense of uh, people who either don't own or who um, who the deduction is very small for. And this, um, is, and this is even too for, for second and third homes. A lot of these uh, federal subsidies would apply. Uh, I, I believe that is right. I couldn't, um, speak definitely to the, the policy off the top of my head, but I I think that's true. So Mm -hmm. in in that case, it's, um, not even meeting the stated, uh, federal government objectives of encouraging home ownership, uh, if it's someone's vacation home. Uh Uh-huh. Um, uh, uh, oh, I also wanted to talk about some of the FHA policies, that really encourage um, home ownership, perhaps before people are financially ready for it. Um, and we've seen uh, with the financial crisis some of the very severe consequences of people um, buying homes um, when they're not financially ready to take that step. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it's very distressing that we're still uh, pursuing federal policies to encourage home ownership. Right. I mean, but. Uh... Letting people buy homes they can't afford would, could never cause a national crisis, so I don't know that that's really something we should be worried about. Um, <laughs> um, an- another another thing that concerns me with a lot of land use regulation is that a lot of it seems to be somewhat arbitrary based on so board decisions or the degree to which local activists can can marshal opposition. Um, how can what what's the problem with that, uh, and and how could we move to a system maybe of more certainty? Uh, in terms of like development rights, um, d- you're definitely right that um, we tend to see the most organized opposition to new housing in high high income neighborhoods um, and neighborhoods with a lot of social capital among the residents. So that means that new housing in cities tends to go to lower income neighborhoods, um, resulting in the problems of gentrification and rapidly increasing housing prices in uh, the the neighborhoods that were relatively affordable previously. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that just recognizing the importance of by right development so that people have a right to purchase a piece of land and build on it uh, with a known regulatory um, scheme in place is really important. Whereas currently a lot of big cities have a long delayed and complex approval process for new development that really um, uh, introduces a lot of uncertainty into the process and creates the incentive for people to um, actively try to lobby against new development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the the gentrification concern is is definitely unique because a lot of people I think look at new development, um, the kind of new development that you think we need to have more of in cities, uh, and and they see that as the driver of gentrification. But uh, really, what it might be is um, the highly desirable areas are not allowing any new development. So more developments going into low-income areas, which is displacing low-income residents who, in many cases, might not have anywhere else to move just because of citywide restrictions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Low-income market rate renters can be very vulnerable in um, those cases. Mm -hmm. I want to close here in the last few minutes by um, talking about 
where are you optimistic on this? So what are some policies that you think um, might be low-hanging fruit for people who want to make cities more affordable? Um, what are some things that, that maybe local policymakers and activists should really focus their energy on? Well, I think parking reform is an area where we've seen um, some success and a lot of potential for further work. Um, it's um, an area where it's easy to see that requiring a huge number of parking spaces results in sprawl. There's just no way about around that. Um, and um, the first policy step to eliminating these huge um, parking requirements is to is to price um, street parking appropriately. Um, so if street parking is priced way below market rate, people will definitely um, want to park on the street um, and will be willing to drive around for huge amounts of time until they're able to find a spot where they can do that. Mm-hmm. Cities, um, including San Francisco, are experimenting with parking street pricing in response to the amount of demand there is for it, so that prices will go um, up significantly for those um, highest in-demand spots. Um, and this allows for the political pressure for parking requirements to drop off, um, allowing for developers to build the amount of parking that they think their um, customers really want and are willing to pay for rather than um, this huge amount of parking that is required to um, keep street parking accessible. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, uh, my guest today has been Emily Hamilton. Uh, Emily, thanks for joining the Market Urbanism Podcast. Thanks a lot, Nolan. It's been a pleasure.